Section six of the Sunny Side by A. A. Milne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter five, part one. Home notes. The way down. Sidney Smith or Napoleon or Marcus Aurelius, somebody about that time, said that after ten days any letter would answer itself. You see what he meant. Left to itself, your invitation from the Duchess to lunch next Tuesday is no longer a matter to worry about by Wednesday morning. You were either there or not there. It is unnecessary to write now and say that a previous invitation from the Prime Minister, and so on. It was Napoleon's idea, or Dr. Johnson's, or Mark Antony's, one of that circle, that all correspondence can be treated in this manner. I have followed these early masters, or whichever one it was, to the best of my ability. At any given moment in the last few years, there have been ten letters that I absolutely must write, thirty which I ought to write, and fifty which any other person in my position would have written. Probably I have written two. After all, when your profession is writing, you have some excuse for demanding a change of occupation in your leisure hours. No doubt, if I were a coal-heaver by day, my wife would see to the fire after dinner while I wrote letters. As it is, she does the correspondence while I gaze into the fire and think about things. You will say, no doubt, that this was all very well before the war, but that in the army a little writing would be a pleasant change after the day's duties. Allow me to disillusion you. If, years ago, I had ever conceived a glorious future in which my autograph might be of value to the more promiscuous collectors, that conception has now been shattered. Four years in the army has absolutely spoilt the market. Even were I revered in the year 2000 A.D., as Shakespeare is revered now, my half-million autographs, scattered so lavishly on charge-sheets, passes, chits, requisitions, indents, and applications, would keep the price at a dead level of about ten a penny. No, I have had enough of writing in the army, and I never want to sign my own name again. Yours sincerely, Herbert Asquith. Faithfully yours, J. Jellicoe. These by all means, but not my own. However, I wrote a letter in the third year of the war. It was to the bank. It informed the manager that I had arrived in London from France, and should be troubling them again shortly. London being, to all appearances, an expensive place, it also called attention to my new address, a small furnished flat, in which Celia and I could just turn round if we did it separately. When it was written, then came the question of posting it. I was all for waiting till the next morning, but Celia explained that there was actually a letter-box on our own floor, twenty yards down the passage. I took the letter along and dropped it into the slit. Then a wonderful thing happened. 
it went flipperty 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 flop i listened intently hoping for more but that was all deeply disappointed that it was over but absolutely thrilled with my discovery i hurried back to celia any letters you want posted i said in an off-hand way no thank you she said have you written any while we've been here i don't think i've had anything to write i think i said reproachfully it's quite time you wrote to your your bank or your mother or somebody she looked at me and seemed to be struggling for words i know exactly what you're going to say i said but don't say it write a little letter instead well as a matter of fact i must just write a note to the laundress to the laundress i said of course just a note when it was written i insisted on her coming with me to post it with great generosity i allowed her to place it in the slit a delightful thing happened it went flipperty 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 flop right down to the letter-box in the hall two flipperties of floor a simple calculation shows that we are perched on the fifth floor i am glad now that we live so high it must be very dull to be on the fourth floor with only eight flipperties unbearable to be on the first with only two Ooh, how fascinating said celia now don't you think you ought to write to your mother oh i must she wrote we posted it it went flipperty flipperty however you know all about that now since this great discovery of mine life has been a more pleasurable business we feel now that there are romantic possibilities about letters setting forth on their journey from our floor to start life with so many flipperties might lead to anything each time that we send a letter off we listen in a tremble of excitement for the final flop and when it comes i think we both feel vaguely that we are still waiting for something we are waiting to hear some magic letter go flipperty 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 and behold there is no flop and still it goes on flipperty 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 growing fainter in the distance until it arrives at some wonderland of its own one day it must happen so for we cannot listen always for that flop and hear it always nothing in this world is as inevitable as that one day we shall look at each other with awe in our faces and say but it's still flipperting and from that time forward the hill of campton will be a place holy and enchanted perhaps on midsummer eve at any rate i am sure that it is the only way in which to post a letter to father christmas well what i want to say is this if i have been a bad correspondent in the past i am a good one now and celia who was always a good one is a better one it takes at least ten letters a day to satisfy us and we prefer to catch ten different posts 
with the ten in your hand together there is always a temptation to waste them in one wild rush of flipperties all catching each other up it would be a great moment but i do not think we can afford it yet we must wait until we get more practised at letter-writing and even then i am doubtful for it might be that lost in the confusion of that one wild rush the magic letter would start on its way flipperty flipperty to the neverland and we should forever have missed it so friends acquaintances yes and even strangers i beg you now to give me another chance i will answer your letters how gladly i still think that napoleon or canute or the younger pliny one of the pre-raphaelites took a perfectly correct view of his correspondence but then he never had a letter-box which went flipperty 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 flop heavy work every now and then doctors slap me about and ask me if i was always as thin as this as thin as what i say with as much dignity as is possible to a man who has had his shirt taken away from him as thin as this says the doctor hooking his stethoscope on to one of my ribs and then going round to the other side to see how i am getting on there i am slightly better on the other side but he runs his pencil up and down me and produces that pleasing noise which small boys get by dragging a stick along railings i explain that i was always delicately slender but that latterly my ribs have been overdoing it you must put on more flesh he says sternly running his pencil up and down them again he must have been a great nuisance as a small boy i will i say fervently i will satisfied by my promise he gives me back my shirt but it is not only the doctor who complains celia is even more upset by it she says tearfully that i remind her of a herring unfortunately she does not like herrings it is my hope some day to remind her of a turbot and make her happy she too has my promise that i will put on flesh we had a fortnight's leave a little while ago which seemed to give me a good opportunity of putting some on so we retired to a house in the country where there is a weighing machine in the bathroom we felt that the mere sight of this weighing machine twice daily would stimulate the gaps between my ribs they would realize that they had been brought down there on business the first morning i weighed myself just before stepping into the water when i got down to breakfast i told celia the result you are a herring she said sadly but think what an opportunity it gives me if i started the right weight the rest of the fortnight would be practically wasted by the way the doctor talks about putting on flesh but he didn't say how much he wanted what do you think would be a nice amount about another stone said celia you were just a nice size before the war all right perhaps i had better tell the weighing machine this is a cooperative job i can't do it all myself the next morning i was the same as before 
and the next, and the next, and the next. Really, said Celia pathetically, we might just as well have gone to a house where there wasn't a weighing machine at all. I don't believe it's trying. Are you sure you stand on it long enough? Long enough for me. It's a bit cold, you know. Well, make quite sure tomorrow. I must have you not quite so herringy. I made quite sure the next morning. I had eight stone and a half on the weight part, and the little thing you move up and down was on the four notch, and the bar balanced midway between the top and the bottom. To have had a crowd in to see would have been quite unnecessary. The whole machine was shouting eight stone eleven as loudly as it could. "'I expect it's got used to you,' said Celia, when I told her the sad state of affairs. "'It likes eight stone eleven people.' "'We will give it,' I said, "'one more chance.' Next morning the weights were as I had left them, and I stepped on without much hope, expecting that the bar would come slowly up to its midway position of rest. To my immense delight, however, it never hesitated but went straight up to the top, at last i had put on flesh very delicately i moved the thing you move up and down to its next notch still the bar stayed at the top i had put on at least another ounce of flesh i continued to put on more ounces still the bar remained up i was eight stone thirteen good heavens i was eight stone fourteen I pushed the thing you move up and down back to the zero position and exchanged the half-stone weight for a stone one. Excited, but a trifle cold, for it was a fresh morning and the upper part of the window was wide open, I went up from nine stone, ounce by ounce. At nine stone twelve, I jumped off for a moment and shut the window. At eleven stone eight... I had to get off again in order to attend to the bath, which was in danger of overflowing. At fifteen stone eleven, the breakfast gong went. At nineteen stone nine, I realized that I had overdone it. However, I decided to know the worst. The worst that the machine could tell me was twenty stone seven. At twenty stone seven, I left it. Celia, who had nearly finished breakfast, looked up eagerly as I came in. "'Well,' she said, "'I am sorry I am late, I apologized, but I have been putting on flesh.' "'Have you really gone up?' she asked excitedly. "'Yes,' I began mechanically to help myself to porridge, and then stopped. "'No, perhaps not,' I said thoughtfully. "'Have you gone up much?' "'Much,' I said.' quite much. How much? Quick. Celia, I said sadly, I am twenty stone seven. I may be more. The weighing machine gave out then. Oh, but darling, that's much too much. Still, it's what we came here for, I pointed out. No, no bacon, thanks. A small piece of dried toast. I suppose the machine couldn't have made a mistake. It seemed very decided about it. It didn't hesitate at all. Just try again after breakfast, to make sure. Perhaps I'd better try now, I said, getting up, because if I turned out to be only twenty stone six, 
I might venture on a little porridge after all. I shan't be long. I went upstairs. I didn't dare face that weighing machine in my clothes after the way in which I had already strained it without them. I took them off hurriedly and stepped on. To my joy, the bar stayed in its downward position. I took off an ounce, then another ounce. The bar remained down. At eighteen stone two, I jumped off for a moment in order to shut the window, which some careless housemaid had opened again. At twelve stone seven, I shouted through the door to Celia that I shouldn't be long, and that I should want the porridge after all. At four stone six, I said that I had better have an egg or two as well. At three ounces, I stepped off, feeling rather shaken. I have not used the weighing machine since, partly because I do not believe it is trustworthy, partly because I spent the rest of my leave in bed with a severe cold. We are now in London again, where I am putting on flesh. At least the doctor who slapped me about yesterday said that I must, and I promised him that I would. THE PATRIOT this is a true story. Unless you promise to believe me, it is not much good my going on. You promise? Very well. Years ago, I bought a pianola. I went into the shop to buy a gramophone record, and I came out with a pianola. So golden-tongued was the manager. You would think that one could then retire into private life for a little, but it is only the beginning. There is the music stool to be purchased, the library subscription, the tuner's fee, four visits a year if you please, the cabinet for the rolls, the man to oil the pedals, the... however. Nor do I regret my venture. It is common talk that my pianola was the chief thing about me which attracted Celia. I must marry a man with a pianola, she said. And there was I, and here, in fact, we are. My blessings, then, on the golden tongue of the manager. Now there is something very charming in a proper modesty about one's attainments, but it is necessary that the attainments should be generally recognized first. It was admirable in Stevenson to have said, as I'm sure he did, when they congratulated him on his first steam engine, Tut, tut, it's nothing. But he could only say this so long as the others were in a position to offer the congratulations. In order to place you in that position, I must let you know how extraordinarily well I played the pianola. I brought to my interpretation of different opuses an élan, a verve, a je ne sais quoi, and several other French words, which were the astonishment of all who listened to me. But chiefly I was famous for my playing of one piece, The Charge of the Uhlans by Karl Bohm. Others may have seen Venice by Moonlight, or heard the vicar's daughter recite Little Jim, but the favoured few who have been present when Bohm and I were collaborating are the ones who have really lived. Indeed, even the coldest professional critic would have spoken of it as a noteworthy rendition. 
the charge of the Uhlans. If you came to see me, you had to hear it. As arranged for the pianola, it was marked to be played throughout, at a lightning pace, and with the loudest pedal on. So one would play it if one wished to annoy the man in the flat below. But a true musician has, I take it, a higher aim. I disregarded the FFs and the other signposts on the way, and gave it my own interpretation. As played by me, the charge of the Uhlans became a whole battle scene. Indeed, it was necessary, before I began, that I should turn to my audience and describe the scene to them, in the manner, but not in the words, of a Queen's Hall program. Er, first of all, you hear the cavalry galloping past, and then there's a short hymn before action while they form up, and then comes the charge, and then there's a slow bit while they, er, pick up the wounded, and then they trot slowly back again, and if you listen carefully to the last bit, you'll actually hear the horses limping. Something like that, I would say, and it might happen that an insufferable guest, who never got asked again, would object that the hymn part was unusual in real warfare. They sang it in this piece, anyhow, I would say, stiffly, and turn my back on him and begin. But the war put a stop to music, as to many other things. For years the pianola was not played by either of us. We had other things to do. And in our case, curiously enough, absence from the pianola did not make the heart grow fonder. On the contrary, we seemed to lose our taste for music, and when at last we were restored to our pianola, we found that we had grown out of it. "'It's very ugly,' announced Celia. "'We can't help our looks,' I said in my grandmother's voice. "'A bookcase would be much prettier there, but not so tuneful. "'A pianola isn't tuneful if you never play it.' "'True,' I said. "'Celia then became very alluring, "'and suggested that I might find somebody "'who would like to be lent a delightful pianola.' by somebody whose delightful wife had her eye on a delightful bookcase. "'I might,' I said. "'Somebody,' said Celia, "'who isn't supplied with music from below.' I found John. He was quite pleased with the idea, and promised to return the pianola when he got sick of it. So on Wednesday it went. I was not sorry.' because in its silence it was far from beautiful, and we wanted another bookcase badly. But on Tuesday evening, its last hours with us, I had to confess to a certain melancholy. It is sad to part with an old and well-tried friend, particularly when that friend is almost entirely responsible for your marriage. I looked at the pianola, and then I said to Celia, I must play it once again. "'Please,' said Celia. "'The old masterpiece, I suppose,' I said as I got it out. "'Do you think you ought to, now? "'I don't think I want to hear a charge of the Uhlans. "'Beasts! "'I want a charge of our own men.' "'Art,' I said grandly, 
knows no frontiers. I suppose this has been said by several people several times already, but for the moment both Celia and I thought it was rather clever. So I placed the roll in the pianola, sat down, and began to play. Ah, the dear old tune. Dash it all. What's happened? said Celia, breaking a silence which had become alarming. I must have put it in wrong, I said. I wound the roll off, put it in again, and tried a second time, pedaling vigorously. Dead silence. Hush, a note. Another silence. And then another note. I pedaled through to the end. About five notes sounded. Celia, I said, this is wonderful. It really was wonderful. For the first time in its life, my pianola refused to play the charge of the Uhlans. It had played it a hundred times before the war, but now, no. We had to have a farewell piece. I put in a waltz, and it played it perfectly. Then we said good-bye to our pianola, feeling a reverence for it which we had never felt before. You don't believe this? yet you promised you would, and I still assure you that it is true. But I admit that the truth is sometimes hard to believe, and the first six persons to whom I told the story assured me frankly that I was a liar. If one is to be called a liar, one may as well make an effort to deserve the name. I made an effort, therefore, with the seventh person. I put in the charge of the Uhlans, I said, and it played God Save the King. Unfortunately, he was a very patriotic man, and he believed it. So that is how the story is now going about. But you who read this know the real truth of the matter. A Question of Light As soon as Celia had got a checkbook of her own, and I had explained the mysteries of blank and company to her, she looked round for a safe investment of her balance, which amounted to several pounds. My offers, first of an old stocking, and afterwards of mines, mortgages, and aerated bread, were rejected at once. "'I'll leave a little in the bank in case of accidents,' she said, "'and the rest must go somewhere absolutely safe and earn me five per cent. "'Otherwise they shan't have it.' "'We did what we could for her. "'We offered the money to archdeacons and other men of pronounced probity, "'and finally we invested it in the Blanktown Electric Light Company. "'Blanktown is not its real name, of course,' but I do not like to let out any information which may be of value to Celia's enemies, the wicked ones who are trying to snatch her little fortune from her. The world, we feel, is a dangerous place for a young woman with money. Can't I possibly lose it now? she asked. Only in two ways, I said. Blanktown might disappear in the night, or the inhabitants might give up using electric light. It seemed safe enough. At the same time, we watched the newspapers anxiously for details of the latest inventions, and anybody who happened to mention when dining with us that he was experimenting with a new and powerful illuminant 
was handed his hat at once. "'You have Blanktown, then, as the depository of Celia's fortune. "'Now it comes on the scene in another guise. "'I made the announcement with some pride at breakfast yesterday. "'My dear,' I said, "'I have been asked to deliver a lecture.' "'Whatever on?' asked Celia. "'Anything I like. "'The last person lectured on the minor satellites of Jupiter.' and the one who comes after me is doing the architecture of the Byzantine period, so I can take something in between. Like frostbites, said Celia, helpfully. But I don't quite understand. Where is it, and why? The Blanktown Literary and Philosophical Society asked me to lecture to them at Blanktown. The man who was coming is ill. But why you, particularly? "'One comes down to me in the end,' I said modestly. "'I expect it's because of my electric lights. "'Do they give you any money for it?' "'They ask me to name my fee. "'Then say a thousand pounds, "'and lecture on the need for more electric light. "'Fancy if I got six percent.' "'This is a very sordid conversation,' I said, if I agree to lecture at all, it will be simply because I feel that I have a message to deliver. I will now retire into the library and consider what that message is to be. I placed the encyclopedia handy and sat down at my desk. I had already grasped the fact that the title of my discourse was the important thing. In the list of the Society's lectures sent to me, there was hardly one whose title did not impress the imagination in advance. I must be equally impressive. After a little thought, I began to write, Wasps and their young. Lecture, delivered before the Blanktown Literary and Philosophic Society, Tuesday, December 8th. Ladies and gentlemen. Well, said Celia, drifting in, how's it going? I showed her how far I had got. I thought you always began. My Lord Mayor, ladies and gentlemen, she said. Only if the Lord Mayor's there. But how will you know? Yes, that's rather awkward. I shall have to ask the secretary beforehand. I began again. Wasps and their young. Lecture delivered, etc. My Lord Mayor. My lords, ladies and gentlemen, it looked much better. What about baronets? said Celia. There's sure to be lots. Yes, this is going to be difficult. I shall have to have a long talk with the secretary. How's this? My lord mayor, lords, baronets, ladies and gentlemen, and sundries. That's got in everybody. That's all right. And I wanted to ask you... "'Have you got any lantern slides?' "'They're not necessary.' "'But they're much more fun. "'Perhaps they'll have some old ones of Vesuvius that you can work in. "'Well, good-bye.' "'And she drifted out. "'I went on thinking. "'No,' I said to myself. "'I'm on the wrong tack.' "'So I began again. "'Some Yorkshire potholes.' Lecture, delivered before the Blanktown Literary and Philosophical Society, Tuesday, December 8th. My Lord Mayor, my Lords... I don't want to interrupt, said Celia, coming in suddenly, but 
Oh, what's a pothole? A curious underground cavern sometimes found in the north. Aren't caverns always underground? But you're busy. Will you be in for lunch? I shall be writing my lecture all day, I said busily. At lunch I decided to have a little financial talk with Celia. What I feel is this, I said. At most I can ask ten guineas for my lecture. Now my expense all the way to the north, with a night at an hotel, will be at least five pounds. Five pounds ten profit, said Celia. Not bad. Ah, uh, but wait. I have never spoken in public before. In an immense hall, whose acoustics... Who are they? Well, never mind. What I mean is that I shall want some elocution lessons. Say, five, at a guinea each. That still leaves five shillings. If only it left that, it might be worth it. But there's a new white waistcoat. An audience soon gets tired of a lecture, and there's nothing for the wakeful ones to concentrate on but the white waistcoat of the lecturer. It must be of a virgin whiteness, say thirty-five shillings. So I lose thirty shillings by it. Can I afford so much? But you gain the acoustics and the waistcoat. True, of course, if you insist. Oh, you must, said Celia. So I returned to the library. By tea time, I had got as far as this. Adventures with a camera in Somaliland. Lecture delivered before the Blanktown Literary and Philo... And then I had an idea. This time a brilliant one. Celia, I said at tea, I have been wondering whether I ought to take advantage of your generosity. What generosity? In letting me deliver this lecture. It isn't generosity. It's swank. I want to be able to tell everybody. Ah, uh, but the sacrifices you are making. Am I? said Celia with interest. Of course you are. Consider... I ask a fee of ten guineas. They cannot possibly charge more than a shilling a head to listen to me. It would be robbery. So that if there is to be a profit at all, as presumably they anticipate, I shall have a gait of at least two hundred and fifty. I should hope so. Two hundred and fifty. And what does that mean? It means that at seven-thirty o'clock, on the night of December the 8th, Two hundred and fifty residents of Blanktown will turn out the electric lights in their drawing-rooms, perhaps even in their halls, and proceed to the lecture-room. True, the lecture-room will be lit up, a small compensation, but not for long. When the slides of Vesuvius are thrown upon the screen, Celia was going pale. "'But if it's not you,' she faltered, "'it will be somebody else.' No. If I refuse, it will be too late, then, to get a substitute. Besides, they must have tried everybody else before they got down to me. Celia, it is noble of you to sacrifice. Don't go, she cried in anguish. I gave a deep sigh. For your sake, I said, I won't. So that settles it. If my lecture on first principles in homeopathy is ever to be delivered, it must be delivered elsewhere. End of section 6